Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Can you imagine being regularly introduced at work by your gender, like before someone even gives your name? Margaret Cho used to experience that on a nightly basis. And comedy audiences didn't hold back about how they felt. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a woman. Oh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) The worst. It's weird how that sort of misogyny that was sort of existed there, I don't know where they got it from because women comedians are so funny. Like, that's never been an issue with women comics. Like, I never, ever thought women were any less powerful than a male comic, but they just had this assumption. But then women have to be so much better anyway to sort of last in comedy. We have to really excel to go anywhere. It's Bullseye. I'll talk with Margaret Cho about growing up in San Francisco under the care and tutelage of gay men. The Castro scene in the 80s made her feel more comfortable discovering her own identity. The culture that was them just coming from all these small towns and going to San Francisco and New York and suddenly being allowed to be themselves, not only is it great to be gay, it's phenomenal. We'll also talk about the unusual level of responsibility Cho has felt over her life. First, as an in-house translator for her parents, later as an Asian-American trailblazer in entertainment. Plus, I'll sit down with the writer and director Whit Stillman. His new movie, Love and Friendship, is adapted from Jane Austen. But you might notice a little bit of a frat pack vibe in there. It is a kind of comedy that I would have loved to have gotten into, but no one's going to offer me a Will Ferrell film. But I can write some of that kind of comedy and put it into my films. And I'll tell you about the value of being an in-betweener. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Margaret Cho is many things. Shy isn't one of them. She's made a career of searing and revealing comedy. Lately, she's been, well, let's see, performing on the street to raise money for the homeless, uh, marrying couples on stage. That's a recent thing. uh, And also making music. Here's a song from her new album, American Myth. It's called We So Worry, and it features her parents on the chorus. Don't be sad. I want to... Move to LA. It's hard and it's scary. They'll give me jobs for pay. I don't want to leave you, but there's no other way. I have to go, because I'm going to be a star someday. Oh, we're so worried about you. Oh, we don't know what to do. Margaret Cho, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Were you ever um, embarrassed of your parents as a kid? Oh, yes, all the time, because they uh, were very um, paranoid about being Korean. My father was deported in 1970, and uh, so 
during the period of we were trying to get him back into the country, it was really important for us to not speak Korean, us meaning the kids. So they would speak to us in Korean. We'd have to answer in English. And um, having a Korean accent was really considered the most shameful thing because it marked you as a foreigner. So it was really terrifying. And um, so there was a lot of um, the, our foreignness that my parents also rejected, which um, made me embarrassed of the things that they couldn't fully get rid of, like those accents and, and the sort of smell in our house, <laughs> those that's, kinds of things. That's something I feel like I've heard from a lot of people that, smell is like a particularly touchy part of the immigrant experience, especially the thing that you always hear is opening your lunchbox at school. Mm-hmm. Because Korean food is, is most of the cooking, a lot of it is fermentation. So you have a lot of funk Yeah, it's got out. some stank on it. There's yeah, no doubt about that. Definitely. And, and that's part of the beauty and the, the deliciousness of it. But also when you're a kid and you just want to fit in and you want to have ding-dongs and ho-hos and Twinkies and and a, a soda wrapped in an aluminum foil. You know, that the, you, it's impossible to trade dried squid. You just can't <laughs> trade it. I uh, I lived, we're, we're right adjacent to where I used to live when I moved to Los Angeles in Koreatown. I lived in a big apartment building that was maybe, I would say, half first-generation recent Korean immigrants, like mostly like young adults, kind of upwardly mobile type folks. Mm-hmm. And just once in a while, someone would be cooking mm-hmm. and it would just blast the yeah. whole floor, just pa-pow. Yeah. It's um, alarming sometimes, <laughs> the smell. But when you're used to it, you almost don't smell it. And then when you uh, see other people experiencing it, it's like, it, you know, as a kid, it was very shocking. Like, I, I felt really bad bringing people over to my house or like white kids would come over for a sleepover. And I was deep, deeply ashamed. <laughs> When your dad got deported, were you, you were like a baby or a toddler, right? Yeah, I was. I was born in 1968, so I was just just a, a tiny kid. How long was he out of the country? He was back and forth until about 1973, and then finally gained citizenship. And then it was all pretty legit. But then I was the only one at that time to have been born in America, so I had to do all of the phone calls to doctors or I had to talk to any kind of mechanic or any any and it, that's a, a real lot of pressure for a real little kid to have to be almost like the legal representation of the whole family it was really scary I mean I was scared when I was a kid just to talk on the phone that right. was very intimidating to me the idea of being responsible for something while I was doing it mm-hmm. is... you, yeah <laughs> have to do deal with you know like your grandparents medication or to call a pharmacy or to call to make appointments for your whole family. It was, it was really, it was a lot. Were there things about your family life that when you were, you know, at school or not with your parents that you were proud and excited about? Um, I think that Probably at that time, the fact that my parents were still married, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, divorce was such a huge thing for most families. And so most of my friends were with one parent or they would go back and forth between parents or they had stepfathers or, you know, stepmothers, very exotic arrangements or like my mother's boyfriend, these kinds of things. And to me, that was really terrible, like that they had to have these like broken families. And my mother is always very judgmental, like, oh, don't talk to them, they divorce. So I think like the fact that we had a very intact family unit that was also inclusive of the entire extended family too, I think was kind of an impressive brag. 
<laughs> were people impressed by it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> no. But they, that was like, there was like lax parenting in the 70s and 80s. I remember kids like going to kids' houses, they had water beds, and like you could buy cigarettes from their mom for 10 cents. <laughs> like it's so crazy. <laughs> It's really crazy now to think about. Or you you would get like somebody like somebody's parent would buy them beer. That's crazy to me. Like that's I don't know. I think I think buying kids beer is significantly less crazy than selling your own children cigarettes. Yeah, like that's really nuts. I think the idea of off, uh, like running a kind of prison canteen in your own home. <laughs> well, I sort of understand it in a l- little bit. Like, let me. I know you're going to do this anyway. So let me witness how much you're going to smoke. Let me witness. What you'll do. So if you buy your kids beer and they stay in the house, it's sort of like a payment. Like, okay, now that you're sharing this secretive part of yourself, I let you do it, but I'm going to be a part of it as well so you don't get in trouble. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedian Margaret Cho. Her new album of original songs is called American Myth. I want to play this clip, and I'm I'm sorry to sort of spring this on you, um, uh, but it's it's important to me. So this is a video from local television in San Francisco in the, I think I'm going to say mid-80s, mid to late 80s. And uh, it's narrated by a stand-up comedian and uh, San Franciscan, or actually uh, Oaklander, uh, Aisha Tyler. Mm -hmm. And so we'll hear Aisha Tyler narrating, and then we will hear you. Okay. (laughs) And Sam Rockwell. Oh, yes, yes. Batwing Lubricant is the name of our improv troupe. Sam and Margaret are really close friends of mine. They're both real cool and talented. Their suggestion from the audience was that their two ex-lovers meet again by accident on an ocean liner. Well, how about that? Herschel? Hey, you got a... You got a... An ethnic change, didn't you? Yeah! You're Chinese now! Herschel, oh my God! Most of this was unfit for mature yeah, audiences, but it was pretty right on for us. Wow. You know, I got one hanging off my... My God! Yeah. She's snack. She's snacky-wacky. <laughs> you remember? Yeah. Hey, how about this? Yeah, what? Mutant Ninja Dia Fiends and Bobby Virgin Sacrificial Habitat Dance! Virgin 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 I love that. I love that. That's my comedy partner and my friend, Aisha. That's part of a documentary called Sota Jambox, which was School of the Arts. And it was an overview of our school, which we we weren't there for very much longer after that. But uh, it's so cute. I, I think we were trying to be um, uh, maybe like a stiller and mirror, like a child stiller and mirror or something. It's really adorable. <laughs> What was it like for you when, um, you know, you became a comedian as a teenager at the absolute height of stand-up comedy in America? I mean, I think we've gotten to, you, we've returned to some of that height now, but mm-hmm. um, at the absolute height of stand-up comedy in America, what was it like for you five and eight years later in the, as we got into the 90s and everyone appearing on Evening at the Improv, you know, once a month disappeared? Yeah. 
It was, well, it was okay for me because I sort of went beyond that. That was the era of stand-up comics being turned into sitcoms. And so you had uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who who helped me a lot also in the initial years and, and continues to, and uh, Roseanne and Tim Allen, these people who were taking their comedy and making it a sitcom. So I was sort of purchased for that. And so I was able to kind of go beyond when all of those TV shows like Evening at the Improv and Comics Strip Live went away, I was still able to do television then. I want to play a clip from your most recent stand-up special, which is called uh, Psycho or Psycho. Is there a correct pronunciation? Well, the title, the full title is There's No I in Team, But There Is a Cho in Psycho. So actually both <laughs> are correct. Okay, so uh, you're talking a little bit about um, your experiences uh, on the sitcom American Girl, which was a sitcom that you got earlier, early mm-hmm. in your career and was the first Asian-American family sitcom yes. in the United States. And the new show, Fresh Off the Boat, which you consulted a little bit on, yeah. um, just kind of lent a hand on uh, as as necessary, an experienced ear. <laughs> just advice for Eddie Huang, you yeah. know, not an official position at all. But now I'm so grateful that the show is so beautiful and well-liked and and very excitingly getting another season two so it's like season three now so this is cool let's take a listen i i i actually created the first asian american family tv show (laughs) 20 years ago and i it up so badly they had to wait for an entire generation of Asian Americans to be born and grow up to Nielsen voting age. <laughs> so now it's on TV, and um, Eddie Huang is the creator of the show, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's a real honor because when he started the development process, he reached out to me because he knew that I was the only person in the entire galaxy who understood what it was like to create an Asian-American family show with ABC. So he found me. He was like, Chobi Wan Kenobi. (laughs) You're my only hope. And so I helped him out. You know, one of the problems is the network didn't like the name of the show, Fresh Off the Boat. They thought it was racist. It It was all white people, too. You know, you know how sometimes when white people will get offended on our behalf? so adorable when they do that. It's like, oh, thanks, thanks. It seems like one of the uh, one of the big challenges for an entertainer like you is that you know you're a Korean American woman, and you are the most famous Korean American woman entertainer, at least in mainstream culture in the United States. <laughs> like I think there's probably some there's probably some Korean American K-pop superstars. Mm-hmm. But uh here in the United States in mainstream culture, you're at the top of that pile mm-hmm. and there aren't a lot of other Korean Americans, much less Korean American women mm-hmm. uh that are broadly known. Mm-hmm. That is a great opportunity because you get a chance to, you know, you get a chance to speak for yourself and speak for people that would not might not otherwise have a voice, but on the other hand, it seems like a a real hassle. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just really grateful that I've able to have such a long career and, and enjoy that, you know, and I was so different when I kind of burst on the scene and now I've inspired a lot of other comedians 
of Asian descent to go and pursue their dreams, which is great because a lot of Asian Americans don't necessarily go into the arts because they want to please their families first. And so they go into these careers that they don't want in their mid-30s. They're very disappointed and upset. And so I've encouraged people to sort of bypass pleasing your parents, which is really a good thing. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm really happy about like what I've been able to accomplish and really excited to see the new generation. I, I imagine that sometimes, though, especially 20 years ago, there must have been a lot of situations where you felt like, man, you know, I wish that I could just speak for myself mm-hmm. because I have this really weird, personal, unusual experience in life. Mm-hmm. And everything that I do by nature of circumstance, is extrapolated. Right. Well, there's this, like, idea, like, oh, do I have to be a comedian or a Korean comedian? Or do I have to be a comedian, a Korean-American comedian? Like, what does identity have to do with my art form? I think it's um, it's all sort of mixed in there. I mean, I don't know if I... I uh, and then initially when I started, I really had to explain why I was there. Like, why is this Korean girl talking to me? <laughs> like, that was the main sort of hurdle that I had to get through with audiences. And that sort of created a lot of my early comedy is the explanation of my presence. But now, since I've been around for a while, I feel a little bit free from that. But all of that still colors my experience. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to the comedian Margaret Cho. She's released a couple of albums of music in addition to her stand-up. Her new record is called American Myth. I was just listening to a great episode of the MaximumFun.org podcast, Lady to Lady, that you were on. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you were talking about with the hosts of that show, who are all female stand-up comics, is that early in your career, one thing you had to deal with was that frequently, maybe even typically, when the MC would introduce you, bring you on stage, not only would you be introduced by your gender, mm-hmm. uh, which a male comic obviously wouldn't be, right. but also... When that gender came out or when the audience saw you, it would, like, let the air out of the room. Yeah. People would go, oh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a woman. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the worst. It's weird how that sort of misogyny that that was sort of existed there, I don't know where they got it from because women comedians are so funny. Like, that's never been an issue with women comics. Like, I never, ever thought women were any less powerful than a male comic but they just had this assumption that and you know that we were weaker or something but then women have to be so much better anyway to sort of last in comedy we have to really excel to go anywhere yeah, i mean it seems like the institutionalized sexism is such that if you're able to get ahead it's because you're extra good right it's it's you have to be pretty extraordinary to to make a, 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 any kind of waves to, anything for anything to happen for you one of the ways that you've dealt with this, and identity is always so huge in stand-up comedy, like the, whether it's uh, whether it's the Blue Collar Comedy Tour mm-hmm. or Chris Hardwick is the Nerdist mm-hmm. or whatever, just giving people some idea of who you are and what your perspective is in a very simple way is so central to bringing your comedy to people. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like one of the ways that you've been able to deal with this is through your queer identity, mm-hmm. that by joining this group of people who are in part, and I don't mean joining uh, biologically, I mean sort of publicly, mm-hmm. um, by joining this group of people who are in a way defined by this weird circumstance of their life, that they're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or 
gender nonconforming or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like it seems like a space where those other differences are either less important or it's a place for them to be celebrated. Yeah, I mean that that's um one uh, one thing that I I'm really I that's sort of my parents sort of decision my parents had a gay bookstore in the 70s which is so unusual for Korean people to do. I don't think of any other instance where that's happened. But my father was very um very open about the gay community. He wanted to have a business in the gay community and to support them. And so I was introduced to all of these people who were very, very big followers of Harvey Milk, initial like sort of gay activists, like this first wave after Stonewall. And so this is an exciting environment to grow up in and, and then to do stand-up comedy. And then I identified as a lesbian initially when I sort of became 18 and I thought, oh, I'm gay. I, I realized this is what sort of maybe made my sort of sense of like feeling different uh, valid. And then I realized a little later, oh, no, I actually am bisexual, too. So it was um, it was a really comfortable feeling to be within this community that accepted sexuality and then accepted beyond sexuality, all these different other aspects of yourself. At what point did you feel like and I don't know if this is even the case now, but at what point did you feel like um you were, I don't know, at home in your sense of self? I think um, either uh, probably in my late 20s, like after I had done television, had a sort of very famous failure and then went back to do stand-up comedy. Um, it, it was very... Uh, it was very apparent to me that I was on the right path, you know, and that I, I felt um, really proud of my work and that I didn't need any kind of institution to endorse it. Like I didn't need sort of the greater the realm of television to say this is okay, this is good. I, I was able to kind of be self, sort of standalone, self-functioning kind of uh, entity. And so I think that's probably when I felt really like I'm okay. I'm good. After after your sitcom, uh, after your sitcom was canceled, did you feel like it was a failure? Oh yes, I felt very disappointed, and I felt very hopeless. Like I think there was this idea, like, oh, you've got this one shot, and you've got to, you, you know, make it. And and uh, it was it was very frustrating. But then when I went back to the clubs, and I realized, oh, I have this whole new following. I have all this new material. It's it just became very fulfilling in a different way. Did you feel like you were happy to make your career as a stand-up comic after you had uh, you had not been able to make your career as a sitcom star? Yes, absolutely. I was so um, I was so happy about that. You know that I could still do that, and that it was just as fulfilling, if not as financially lucrative. It was still very um, thrilling. And important to me, so that was that was a good thing, and I still feel that to some extent. Even though I want to do other things like television and music and writing and different stuff, I I still really am grateful for stand up, and that's what I think will always be my life. I, I want to play a clip of uh, you have recently. There's been uh, a lot of demand for Korean American actors. Uh, to play either Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, <laughs> the uh, dynastic dictators of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've gotten in on the game in a couple of different contexts. Yes. Um, I want to play a clip from 30 Rock, which is one of my favorite shows. And so in this scene, you're playing Kim Jong-il. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Liz Lemon, who's Tina Fey, the main character in the show, basically just runs into a cater waiter at a wedding 
who she thinks it looks very suspiciously like not a cater waiter, but rather the North Korean dictator. <laughs> Excuse me, lady. You do the vow? You know, speak now or forever hold your peace, but... Oh, my God. Are you? No. I'm nobody. Kim Jong-il is dead. I'm only waiter. I'm greatest waiter of all time. So here's my question about uh, portraying the brutal, evil dictators of North Korea. Mm -hmm. What is your take on doing that? Why do it? Why do it the way that you do it? Well, I I just um, copying members of my family. Part of my family who are brutal dictators. They're they're not brutal dictators, (laughs) but they do have. uh, They are of Korean descent and North Korean descent too. I mean, from the Korea that was united at one point, and so. It's a way to get back at this really terrible entity that I mean, they, they, they've separated my family for now 66 years and we don't know what's happened to them and we don't know what's going on over there. And it's the only way to maybe lighten up this very tragic situation. How do you feel about uh, the fact that given the relative paucity of Koreans in the media that for a lot of Americans, it might be the only representation they get mm-hmm. of a Korean person. Well, we're glad to do it. I'm excited. Like, I, I think, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm like different, you know, I'm in a generation where I'm just so grateful for everything that I have, you know, now that uh, the younger generation can maybe have more, but more representation and more freedom. Um, I'll just do anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good answer. Yeah, yeah. I'll finish my conversation with Margaret Cho after a break. Plus, I'll sit down with the writer and director Whit Stillman. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from the Black Tux, a modern way to rent tuxedos and suits. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome suits and tuxedos for rent fast and easy online. You can select from complete looks or build your own. And the Black Tux customer service team is on hand to lend assistance with fitting needs. Shipping is free both ways, so after an event, use the box the tuxedo or suit came in to send it back. Visit theblacktux.com bullseye. Experience a new way to rent. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone for conversations you won't hear anywhere else. This week, find Guy Raz's exclusive interview with TED curator Chris Anderson, where they discuss the TED phenomenon and the secrets to giving a great TED Talk. Find their conversation by searching TED Radio on the NPR One app, where you can also find stories from your local station and more great podcasts. NPR One is on your app store now. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the stand-up comic actor and musician Margaret Cho. Just a heads up, if you're listening with kids, we're about to talk about sexuality over the next few minutes. Not anything explicit, but just so you know. Let's hear another song from Margaret Cho's new album. The album's called American Myth. This song's called Ron's Got a DUI. Smoke on. 
describe this song as a tribute to the older gay guys in your life, especially when you were young? Yes, because they would always end up being the default babysitter. These different guys, um, a lot of them were getting sick. This is the first wave of, of people really realizing that AIDS was deadly. And so, you know, you witnessed all of these very, very healthy, beautiful young men suddenly become very sick and very old, and then you didn't see them anymore. So this song is really about that generation, this missing rung of gay men that we don't have. Like, there's just, like, a whole, like, age group that is lost. And so during the creation of this video, I made an AIDS quilt panel that um, sort of represents these men that uh, will go on to the larger AIDS quilt when um, it's in Grace Cathedral now in San Francisco. So I'll sew it on when it gets um, to a different place. But I, I just wanted a tribute to them because we don't really think about that whole generation of men who died. Was there anyone in particular that you would tell us about? I think Frank Ranzano. He was my father's favorite employee, and he was—he looked like a cowboy, and uh, he would often sort of just be around, like you know, kind of watching over me. And then, just the thought of him piercing—you know, this incredibly virile, like strong cowboy, kind of majestic man getting sicker and sicker—and then he was gone. And then the owner also of. Um, Josie's juice joint, Ron. Uh, his his name is in the song. He he passed away. Also, it's very, it's all very shocking to me still because I react to their deaths like a child would. How's that? It's like a, I don't. I need to be explained what death is. You know, like I still like their deaths came before anybody told me what death was, and I still have a hard time comprehending it. There is in uh, in places where there were uh, a lot of uh, gay people living as gay and especially gay men um, like San Francisco and New York in the 70s and 80s. There is this this almost like a tear in the timeline between the you know in the, in the 1980s mostly up until the antiretrovirals. Made ex- started extending people's lives. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible dislocation, right? And then also the culture that was them just coming from all these small towns and going to San Francisco and New York, and suddenly being allowed to be themselves. Not only is it great to be gay, it's phenomenal. And all of these beautiful men together, and they're all sort of dressed up in like the little outfits, like the village people. Literally, you know, this this kind of party happening all the time. And I think that was the first time that I witnessed sexuality that felt safe to me because I wasn't involved at all, that i had had a lot of sexual abuse and, and difficulty as a very young kid. And so to see sexuality, especially male sexuality, played out in front of me that didn't include me, that wasn't threatening, I think it was very healing to see. As a young person who was trying to figure out your own identity, what kind of effect did it have on you to see people who basically had come from all around the world to celebrate who they were. I think it made me feel very safe uh, that being different was safe and that being gay was a privilege, that it was something that held you in um, sort of a higher honor and that you were able to experience the better nature, the better side of people and the the imaginative, colorful, playful, creative side as opposed to the sort of practical, like on the road to a family side, which I, I always really responded to. 
How do you feel about your career now in 2016? I like it. It's very, it's different. Every day there's something else, you know, whether it's um, comedy or, or music or acting or TV commentary or whatever. It's it's always very um, thrilling. You know, I'm able to do different things that challenge me and also enjoying social media, which is also very weird still to me that it exists. Do you enjoy social media? I do. I do to a certain extent and then I get really mad at it also. Because <laughs> I, imagine, I, I imagine that you, you as a public personality would get a, let's say, a variety of reactions mm-hmm. on social media. Mm-hmm. And then I often engage in battles, which is not good for me, and it's not reasonable, but it's also kind of funny, too. Like, I, I think that uh, it's amazing what people will say, like, the the negativity and the, just the naked rage of people. And then when you engage with them, they, they, the sort of more comes out, and then it sort of lessens. I don't know. I, I just feel so um, awed about it in, and also grateful for it, but then not. I don't know. I can't even figure out. Like, could you imagine in the 90s if you could just reach out to Evan Dando about <laughs> what he was doing? Like, to me, celebrity used to be such a uh, sort of uncrossable river to sort of another world that was like literal river sticks. And now there, there seems to be a drought. There's no water in it. <laughs> Do you feel secure in your career now? Do you feel comfortable in it? Yeah, I think so. But then you also don't, you know, you never do exactly. So there's like this eternal hunger to to want to strive for more. Um, I am not at a level of uh, success that I would like to, I'd like to be more, but then I, I couldn't really, I don't know what I, else I could ask for exactly. So um, I just, I'm conflicted, but that I, I enjoy the dailiness of it, the differences and the um, social life that I have around it, too, because everybody I work with is my friend. Well, Margaret, I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. So great. Thank you so much. Margaret Cho. Her new album of original songs is called American Myth. You can find that along with her comedy albums, writing, and tour dates at margaretcho.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Director Whit Stillman's characters have a way of talking circles around themselves. They're often young adults trying to figure out where to take their lives. They're often long on ideas, but maybe a little short on vision. His first three films were a sort of informal trilogy, semi-autobiographical. Metropolitan, a comedy of manners about young wasps in New York. Barcelona, about two Americans in Spain. And The Last Days of Disco, about New York's club scene in the beginning of the 1980s. The last of those came out in 1998. His next film didn't come out until 2011. It was the mannered and slightly fantastical college comedy, Damsels in Distress. Now he's come to one of his great inspirations, Jane Austen. His new film, Love and Friendship, is an adaptation of a novella that Austen wrote when she was very young and never published. It's set in the 1790s, and it centers on Lady Susan, a widow who's engaged in some very complicated social machinations. In this scene, Susan, who's played by Kate Beckinsale, is chatting with her American expat friend, Alicia, who's played by Chloe Sevigny. Susan's close to penniless without her husband, and she's about to head off to stay with her in-laws in the country and uh, also to kick off a big plan. I was determined to be discreet, and I have been. 
admitting no one's attentions but Mannering's, avoiding general flirtation entirely, except for a little notice bestowed on Sir James Martin, but if the world knew my motive there, it would honour me. Martin? Sir James Martin, of Martindale. Vastly rich, rather simple. Ideal. Miss Maria Mannering had set her cap for him, considering such an income too large not to be shared, but with a little notice, I detached him and soon had him in love with Frederica. If my daughter were not the greatest simpleton on earth, she would be engaged to him now. What? She refused him. A baronet with 10,000 a year. It's all so provoking. But where will he live? If there were another place open to me, I would crawl there on my knees. The worst spot this side of the ocean. A country village. Churchill, my brother-in-law's seat. Mrs Cross, a gentlewoman in straitened circumstances, will come with me as my companion. To pack and unpack. Yeah, that sort of thing. And as there's an element of friendship involved, I'm sure the paying of wages would be offensive to us both. <laughs> Whit Stillman, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, did you find and do you find Jane Austen funny? I find Jane Austen funny. Um, I think, though, that Lady Susan, that Love and Friendship is based on, is particularly funny. So it's all, there's humorous, wise sensibility throughout Jane Austen. There's, I mean, there's some jokes in Love and Friendship that I haven't read the novella, but feel like they come straight out of uh, Jane Austen, but are almost more cutting and intense than you would expect from Jane Austen. Well, when I, um, I discovered Lady Susan actually when I went back in sort of the end of the '90s, around 2000, and I want to, I saw an edition of Northanger Abbey, and I decided to get it and see if I still disliked it. And I didn't dislike it. I liked it. And in that edition, in the back, they had Lady Susan, this novella um, she wrote and didn't publish in her lifetime. Her literary nephew um, published it in the second edition of his memoir of his aunt. And um, I, I read it and found it, the material, very funny and very Oscar Wildean. It was not typically, I mean, Jane Austen is funny and comical. But this is different. This was super funny and 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 very sort of malicious and wildian. Well, I think one of the interesting things about it, at least as you as you portrayed in the film, is that you know we obviously associate Jane Austen with these kind of social machinations. I mean, that's central to everything that she does. But yeah. we also associate her with, or at least I do, with a kind of warm romantic quality. And this is a film uh, that is, you know, I mean, it ends in weddings, but it's like the the romances aren't exactly sweet. You know what I mean? I mean, I think there are two Jane Austens or, 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 or several. There are the Jane Austen of the adaptations. And those, I think, almost always invariably skew romantic because I think people feel it's more commercial and they're sort of making genre films or making women's films or something like that. And um, it's a bit of a shame. It's a bit selling um, – well, it's not a bit of a shame. It, it, it's very much selling Jane Austen short because I think Jane Austen appeals to men just as much as – she should appeal to men as much as she, she appeals to women. And um, her point of view is not exactly romantic. So I think Fitzgerald is a romantic author and Jane Austen isn't. And, um, yes, there are romances. Um, she's very serious about character and, and the character choices people make. And so in a wonderful novel of hers like Persuasion, there's kind of great thought going into it. And so you don't 
really feel that you're being swept up in something romantic. It's not the Brontes. It's not Fitzgerald. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the writer-director Whit Stillman. You might know from his movies Metropolitan, Barcelona, or The Last Days of Disco. His new movie is a Jane Austen adaptation called Love and Friendship. Let's take a listen to another little bit of Love and Friendship. So this is Lady Susan and Reginald, the guy who she is uh, wooing for her own complicated reasons. And they're walking around in the courtyard. And Lady Susan sees her daughter watching them from a window, her her very unhappy daughter at that moment. Her motive isn't that complicated. She wants his fortune. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And uh, but it's a, there's a couple separations between her and that fortune, so it's a little more complicated than that. Anyway, uh, the daughter's watching from a window, and she's she's talking about uh, what it's like to have children. How odd to be spied upon. That's the parents' lot. We bring these delightful creatures into the world eagerly, happily, and then before long, they're spying upon and judging us, rarely favorably. Having children is our fondest wish, but in doing so, we breed our acutest critics. It's a preposterous situation, but entirely of our own making. I marvel at your good humour. Well, what alternative have we? It's the way of the world. We must accept it with a smile. Of course, when the little ones are very small, there's a kind of sweetness which partially compensates for the dreadfulness which comes after. You worry for Frederica's future? I worry for her present, acknowledging that the responsibility for securing her future rests with me. (laughs) <laughs> what a sweet and generous outlook she has. I think there's a lot of truth in what she says. What do you think of Lady Susan yourself? Well, we thought it was going to be a problem with the movie that she is so malicious and scheming and, and seemingly heartless uh, that people would have a problem with that, but they actually don't. Um, <laughs> she actually is quite amusing, and you sort of cheer her on. And, and although her intentions are entirely dishonorable, um, sort of good things happen to everyone, finally. Lady Susan, throughout the film, has these incredible, grand speeches. Whenever she's backed into a corner, she, yes. she has a rhetorical flourish to defend mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you relate to? Do you feel like you have uh, – that you could talk yourself out of things? I'm not sure. I mean I think that when you make a project, you think of like what – okay, you want to do something that's entertaining for people and you want it to attract enough of an audience so the investors get paid back with a profit. But you also want other things to be accomplished. And so how do you justify a film a, basically about a couple of malicious people surrounded by very nice and funny people? Um, so the nice and funny people are a compensation. The fact that malicious people are very funny too is a compensation. But also I think the, the sort of meaning um, of, of part of the film is to completely distrust what people say. So a lot of people in this world who really just will say – all kinds of obviously untrue things and that it's really quite shocking the number of people who will believe them and think that things that are said by people are true because they're being said and when they're absolutely not. And so in the world today, we find a lot of scoundrel types who have large followings, a lot of people justifying them just completely implausibly. Um, and so these are the, the not-so-pretty, not-so-funny Lady Susans of the world. 
Are you talking about I mean, I'm not mentioning Vladimir Putin or someone like that, but it's really crazy to sort of see all the people who will justify people who are obviously badly intentioned and doing bad things, and then all these people just charge out to apologize for them. I mean, this kind of sort of grand eloquence is in a lot of your films. I mean, it's not just this film. It's something that you've been looking at and using since... 1990, you know, that's 25 years. Well, it's really differently used um, in this case. Um, there is, there has been sort of a character line through the films. It's sort of the, 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 the talkative live wire, the, the group leader. Um, and, and often the group leader is challenged and overthrown. Um, so um, in the first three films, that was played by the actor Chris Eigerman. He did a really beautiful job with it. And it was very funny. And also there was sort of an interesting dynamic because in Metropolitan, he is sort of the snobbish character. He's sort of the leader of this um, group that could seem snobbish or he's he's defending all these old modes, these, these, these former um, traditions. And yet he's very nice to the outsider character that the audience might identify with. So there's a nice dynamic there. So it seems like he's going to be the bad guy, but actually he's nice to our hero. And then Chris Eichmann sort of played that one way or another in the first three films. And he sort of joined in that by Kate Beckinsale in, in Last Days of Disco. She's also playing a live wire character, Charlotte. But I think one of the problems in, in the acceptance of that film, why it sort of played less well than Metropolitan, is because her relationship with the Chloe Savini character, who's sort of the nice identification character, is not nice. So she's saying all these things and being extroverted and extravagant, but she's also not being nice to her. And that was a little bit too much sourness, I think, for the audience. And then in um, Damsels in Distress, it's the Greta Gerwig character. And I think a lot of people in the audience, from my point of view, they sort of wrong-footed and think she's not a sympathetic character. Um, and what I find is that the extroverted, larger-than-life character who's trying to do good things, in fact, gets more sort of pushback from the audience than that character doing sometimes bad things. So it seems that the Lady Susan character in Love and Friendship is much more liked than the character who I liked in Damsels in Distress, the Violet Worcester character that Greta Gerwig played. And um, in Jane Austen, um, many critics and English professors sort of prefer Emma, and they like Emma and talk about its point of view and all that. But among Jane Austen readers and fans, I think Emma's sort of less popular, and she's kind of a pill. And yes, at the end, it's all really wonderfully resolved, and we're very happy with it. Um, but while we're reading it, we get a little too annoyed with uh, Emma to fully enjoy it. And, and it just amuses me um, that these malicious characters are sort of uh, entertaining people so much. I want to play a clip from Damsels in Distress. So Violet, the character we've been talking about, uh, played by Greta Gerwig, is comforting a, a sort of new friend named Press about a lost love. You'd rather not talk about it. You don't have no, it's to. okay. I just... I keep thinking how he... used to gaze at me with such love in his eyes. You know what I mean? No. No, I've never actually seen that. Just days ago, he'd gaze at me. His eyes, so blue. He had blue eyes. So does Frank. Frank's the guy that I go out with, otherwise he's not conventionally good-looking, which I actually prefer. 
Would you describe Josh as handsome? That's a problem. Could I join you guys? Yes, please. Chris and I were just talking. In my view, handsome men are to be avoided. I don't even consider good looks to be flattering in a man. Do you know what I mean? No. Cookie-cutter, good-looking guys with their chiseled features running around full of themselves, getting everything they want, never suffering or experiencing We any. suffered? We're not under discussion. That's irrelevant. It's besides the point. I'll finish my conversation with Whit Stillman after a break. He'll talk about how Will Ferrell's elf informed the humor of his Jane Austen movie. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Take a listen to the new NPR podcast, Code Switch, hosted by Gene Demby and Shireen Marisol Maraji. Code Switch is a new podcast that helps us understand how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives, from music to food to sports, all from a diverse group of journalists. Sometimes they'll make you laugh. Other times you might get uncomfortable. But it will always be unflinchingly honest. Find Code Switch on npr.org slash podcasts and the NPR One app. Please help to make Bullseye even better by taking a quick survey. Just go to npr.org slash bullseye survey and tell us what you think. That's npr.org slash bullseye survey. Thank you. My guest on Bullseye is the director, Whit Stillman. His new movie, Love and Friendship, is in theaters this week. So, Whit, you mentioned just before our break this kind of outsider character that the film viewer kind of might identify with. There's one in Damsels in Distress, um, in Metropolitan, of course. Your films are often about these kind of complicated social systems. Have you felt in your own life more often like an insider or an outsider? Well, I think that um, in, in, in our society, everyone thinks they're an outsider, no matter what. And I've sort of uh, been shocked at the people who I consider just such total insiders who have their outsider chip in the shoulder. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of um, a peculiar um, point of view that is just absolutely widely shared, even if it doesn't seem to have much much reality. And, and it's like incredibly widespread and so you're with these people and you think these people really are at the top of the mountain you know they have fa these famous names and family fortunes and you think wow they really um, are, are just at the top of the heap and they think that there's this other people who I don't know who it is exactly the Prince of Wales or you know so it's it's it's, it's maybe it's an American thing I think in Europe they sort of really openly look down on a lot of people and we are always looking up at the idea that other people are looking down at us. How, how, how do you feel about it personally? I, I don't really know, but I know in the films something strange is going on where in, in Metropolitan I tried to write the sympathetic protagonist outsider character a little bit based on my own experiences, thinking that I was very left-wing and very much out of it, and then going to those parties and being seduced by them, but sort of keeping up my pretensions to being left-wing and all that. And What was seductive about them? What? What was seductive about them? <laughs> uh, when you're dead in the water socially and really nice, funny people invite you to parties where there's 
you know, free drinks and food and music <laughs> and dancing and uh, and it sort of brings your fantasies of the F. Scott Fitzgerald were to life and you're in love with one or more of the girls. Uh, it's pretty. It was pretty attractive. Um, it was uh, worth giving up my Fourierism and my dispensing with my Fourierist ideals and and um, so. I had to sort of, at a certain point, you know, not, you know, stop being a sort of hypocrite and try to harmonize my point of view. What did you do in order to do that? Uh, I stopped thinking about it so much. Anyway, um, <laughs> so anyway, the outsider character in Metropolitan. Um, no, no, we're talking about you. Don't give me this so anyway stuff. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, is that the subject? I thought it was the films. That, well, I'm, well, that's to, what? I'm here to sell the films. <laughs> We've been we selling talked the about, films. You haven't talked about the box set yet. <laughs> well, you were talking about your personal experience. You haven't talked about the Criterion box set we, the first okay, three films. Let's talk about what we've talked about. We've talked a lot about your uh, wonderful new movie, Love and Friendship. My guest, by the way, Whit Stillman, the writer and director of it's the film. It's also a novel. Uh, and we have not addressed the novel or the box set. So we have not addressed the media on which these uh, products come that much yet. Did you have an objective when you made the film? I mean, did was there something that you wanted to get into the world? My objective was to have employment in the film industry. That was my objective. <laughs> and in order to be a film director, I had to have a script. In order to have a script, I had to write the script because I had many times given up the idea of writing and being a writer. Why did you think that you could do the film industry? I wasn't sure that I could, but I wanted to because I didn't feel I had the stamina or the guts or the concentration or discipline to be a novelist. I felt it would be too solitary and too frustrating and um, that I didn't have what it took. And so that I felt that in the audiovisual industry, I could somehow um, hang on and, and do things. I feel like when I was a kid in school, because I had some facility with writing, an English teacher or whatever would say to me, oh, you should consider becoming a writer. And the thing that always scared me about becoming a writer, the thing that scared me about becoming a writer was the idea of sitting alone in a room and looking at a blank page, you know, on the computer screen or on a blank piece of paper and then doing it again the next day and again the next day. Yeah, it's it's the thing I, I – because I often get the question, like, what part of filmmaking do you like the most? And it can all be bad. I mean, everything can go wrong. Um, but I know what I don't like most. And what I don't like most is that when after the sort of euphoria of getting an idea that you want to do and maybe convincing other people to back you in, in writing that or, or, or supporting you in some way, um, then to sit down with nothing and have a blank page. And so to avoid the thing of being alone, at least I can go to these very nice cafes they have now. They have really nice cafes with good coffee or Dunkin' Donuts where I often go to write. Um, so that at least I'm having coffee and out in the world looking at people and interacting with the people who work at the cafe. And it makes it a little less miserable. But I really hate starting things when you just have either nothing or really bad stuff. You really have bad stuff for a long time, and um, it's very painful. 
I find, but I shouldn't complain so much. But in this case, with with um, love and friendship, and people ask, what's the difference with an adaptation? Well, one of the good things about an adaptation, if you have this really funny material that Jane Austen's written, is you have something good to work on. So for a long time on this script, I was just sort of chiseling... Um, um, editing, fiddling with Jane Austen sentences. So here's a Jane Austen sentence written by Lady Susan, and here's another Jane Austen sentence written by her Alicia Johnson character. And then how do I order them so they are not in letters to each other distantly, but they're doing something and talking to each other? And so getting to work with the funny Jane Austen material sort of put off this sort of agony of trying stuff new. And then later that did come because there had to be new stuff to, to make the film a whole story, but it, it could come later on. And there wasn't that really painful thing of the blank page and, or just the, even worse than the blank page is the blank page filled with terrible stuff that you're going to have to throw out. Although you just spent the last month working on it. You, uh, you didn't have a film in theaters for many years, for more than a dozen years. And there's a lot of kinds of working in show business that don't involve anything coming out. It's kind of amazing when you look inside it how much work goes into things that never appear to the public. How much of those dozen-plus years were you working? And was there was there time when you really, truly weren't working for money? I was working the whole time, and I was under the illusion I was being productive, and it wasn't that bad because the writing wasn't going that badly. Um, the first two years of sort of career mistake, I remember one fellow really criticizing me for going over to live in Paris, um, which is almost an economy move because couldn't afford Manhattan. Um, and Paris was very cheap then and all kinds of advantages there. So, But he criticized me. He said, it's a bad time in your career to move over there and all that. I thought that the situation in London was terrific just then. Um, last day's disco had done really well, and I thought I could just take the train over to London and set everything up there, and it would go really well. And um, initially I did get a really good response and backing for two projects to write the script. And... Um, but another career mistake was to engage in this um, folly of writing a novel based on um, The Last Days of Disco. And so in a way, it was a great experience because I was happy with the result and um, and got to publish the first novel that I never thought I could do. Um, and Forrest Strass published it really well, really beautifully. Um, but it was two years. And if you don't really have much momentum anyway, if you're kind of doing things too slowly, um, to take two years off or it wasn't really two years because other things were happening, but to take that time off and not being doing film project was really a bad error as far as film career. And also people, if you're in the film business, they don't give you credit because you did a novel. They don't care about that. You can do, you know, opera at the Scala and they don't care if you haven't done a film. And so that slowed me up and it was, it was, it was bad. And then these adaptations that didn't work out. And it's really bad when I, I, Never want to be in that situation where you build an edifice, but you don't own the land. And so the edifice is valueless. And that's what happens when you write a script based on material you don't own. And, um, and, and that was you know, frustrating. But on the other hand, Love and Friendship comes out of that period. 
Um, I have other scripts that I was working on that I really do like the thing of you work on something and you put it aside and you come back to it. Um, it sort of gains in character, I feel. And so I do have other things that I hope to to put to good use and come out with films in the future. Were you were there times when you had to face a possibility that you were a filmmaker who wouldn't get to do any more filmmaking? Absolutely. Um, when you're talking with other filmmakers who are in the same boat, they call it director jail. And uh, if you have that dy- that sort of negative momentum, um, I think it's hard to change it. And I'm very grateful to the people who helped me change it. It seems to me like it, you are very deeply committed to the idea, especially in these last two films, of making a film that's entertaining, um, like making putting fun into a movie, um, which I don't think is a universal value for filmmakers, especially for filmmakers whose movies tend to you know come out in uh, art house movie theaters and so on. Is that true? And and why is that? Well, one is. thing that happened um, is that I fell in love with the comedy of of actors like Will Ferrell. Um, I took my daughters in Paris to see Elf, and I, I adored I adored it, and I adore it when Will Ferrell plays innocence. And so um, it, it was a kind of comedy um, that I would have loved to have gotten into, but no one's going to offer me a Will Ferrell film. I did meet him, and he's he's absolutely fantastic, um, but you know they're, they're not going to offer me that. But I can write some of that kind of comedy and put it into my films and enjoy that and have other actors. So in um, Damsels in Distress, people are strangely disconcerted by it, but there's a lot of that kind of frat boy comedy. And I love the actors who did it, and it's sort of my favorite part in in the movie. And um, then in this, we got to do that with the sort of British sketch comedy tradition. It's sort of um, a little bit of Peter Sellers or the sort of less broad parts of Monty Python and John Cleese. I, I want to. Pl- I'm going to play a scene from Love and Friendship that is uh, that I was that I can definitely see a bit of Will Ferrell in. Um, so there's this character named Sir James, Sir James Martin, and he is he's very rich, and there's a lot of talk before he enters the film about how he may or may not be all there um, in the brain. Like he might be a little on the, what is it, a rattle. He's a bit of a rattle. He's a bit of a rattle. Very evocative. Um, Anyway, so one day he just kind of shows up uh, and he's trying to court uh, the daughter of uh, Susan, the protagonist of the film. And uh, anyway, this 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 is the first time he comes on screen. Churchill. That's how you say it. All together like that. Churchill. (laughs) Oh, well, that explains a lot. You see, I'd heard church and hill, but couldn't find either. All I could see was this big house. (laughs) Fine name. Churchill. Marlborough, right? The general. Showed the French. You must be very proud. No connection. But I believe I have heard it spoken of. I, I think you mentioned it. Churchill. Yes, I think you did. But again, oh, I heard Church and Hill, and I couldn't see either. But I realised I was in mistake, and now stand 
corrected. Uh, happens quite a lot. <laughs> uh, Reginald, would you be so kind as to take Sir James to see Charles? I think you'll find Charles very well versed in the advanced agricultural methods in which you've taken such an interest. Oh, yes. Advanced agricultural methods, very much so. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Whit Stillman, who wrote and directed Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Damsels in Distress. His newest is based on an unfinished novel by Jane Austen. It's called Love and Friendship. So um, I've, heard you say, I've heard you talk about or read you talking about your regard for the 18th century where uh, the film is set. Yes. What is it that you like about it? Well, there are many, many things I like about the 18th century. Um, I like the architecture. I like the music. Um, I like dress. I like the aspirations, many of the aspirations. Um, I like thought, political thought of the period. Um, so I don't know where to... I like a lot of the literature. So I don't know what else to say. I mean, if I think of the 18th century, I am... I don't like chopping heads off. <laughs> I don't like the, the French... the. Five years of terror. That wasn't so good. I'm going to presume you're also probably anti-slavery. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of... But the abolitionist movement really took, took form and took shape in the 18th century. I mean, there's something... Um, it seems to me like you have a great regard for, uh, for that kind of social structure, whether people are working to use it to their own advantage, like Susan is, you know you know, working angles on it, but that that social structure exists to reinforce those relationships. Is that me projecting on you or is that actual? Yeah, I think you're projecting. I mean, I I think we admire the individuals. And um, so I, it really helped me in Love and Friendship, the fact that I was so immersed in the biographies and histories of people in the United States. I mean, it wasn't the United States then, in America and Britain, um, in Anglo-America, um, in that period. So I sort of obsessively read or listen to audiobooks about that period. So I don't know, since I was preparing a film and a book set in this period, it was very helpful for me to be immersed in, in that culture and, and those thoughts and writings. Did you read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin? I've definitely read it and adored it, and I also like Poor Richard's Almanac. Um, so I even think that it was in Barcelona as one of the books that um, Ted Boynton read to get revved up for sales. I mean, what I what I like about the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, which was I just want like I someone it got assigned to me in college, and I read it, and I was like, wow, this is fantastic. Is that Benjamin Franklin is so profoundly shameless in his the boldness of his assertions and his like weird systems the check the check marks for all of his various virtues that he checks in on every day all these different things are like on the one hand completely absurd like you really are reading it and you're like really you got a list of virtues that you check off every day to see how good of a person you are so you can count it but on the other hand uh it's so wonderful. And also, he was Benjamin Franklin. He really delivered on being Benjamin Franklin. You know what I mean? One has to admire Franklin enormously. And he just did just such wonderful things. And politically, 
He was so important uh, for our country. Um, and yet, of the people from the, that period, there's something very cold and calculating uh, about Franklin. He's not sort of sympathetic in the way many of the others are. I mean, Hamilton was so passionate and so dedicated. Even if he, one thinks he was wrongheaded in some of his ideas, he really was an amazing figure. And um, there are so many of them. With so many, man, it was really, really great to get to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come in here. We're not going to talk about the box set. So, so okay, here's, here's the question. What, what, what do you got, some kind of Criterion box set coming out? Yeah. The okay. Criterion box set of the first three films has just come out. Oh, cool. That's great. I'll, have to, I'll run out and pick that up because they're such wonderful films. Thanks. <laughs> Whit Stillman's new film is called Love and Friendship. Uh, it's being uh, released by Amazon, and uh, there's also an accompanying novel, uh, which is not a novelization, but a sort of companion piece to the film that he's, both of which he's adapted from Jane Austen. Thank you again. Thanks very much. Whit Stillman's new movie, Love and Friendship, is in theaters this week. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. When you think of a great basketball player, what do you think of? Probably somebody like Michael Jordan. Guy who can do incredible things every time the ball's in his hand. Guy making beautiful moves. Seems like he's on roller skates, like he can change direction in midair. Guy who seems to have been born into basketball. I get that. What you probably don't think of is a second-round draft pick, a tweener, guy who's only kind of powerful, kind of tall, but not tall enough to be really tall, and kind of big, but not big enough to be really big, not particularly graceful, a guy who always looks like he's trying super hard. I like that second guy. That's Draymond Green. Attacking Iguodala. Beautiful strip. Warriors with numbers. And Clay Thompson. Finishes off the assist from Draymond, who now has back-to-back triple-doubles. Stephen Curry gets the press on the Golden State Warriors, and for good reason. He is incredible. NBA MVP, and deservingly so, does things no one's done before. But I love Draymond, the guy who does things everyone's done before. Green plays center sometimes, even though he's a bit small for a power forward. He fights for rebounds. He takes a charge. He shoots a three. Great passer. Posts up a guy who's a half a foot taller than him. Works every angle. Got fouled. It rolls in. And Draymond Green talking trash to LeBron James. Not a good idea. <laughs> Showing you immaturity there. Don't get him fired up. Draymond talks a lot of mess on the floor. He flexes his muscles when things go right, and he yells and screams when they don't. Curry's kind of sweet and cool. Draymond always runs hot. I like it that way. Watching Green play is such a joy. Black athletes rarely get credit for being smart and gutsy, especially if they're showy while they're doing it or if they aren't deferential to the press. But all Draymond is is smart and gutsy. He's always in the right place, always getting better, always diving and scrapping and fighting, always stretching and passing and looking to help every other warrior on the floor. Good defense from Smith. Green tries to pull it in, banks it in, and a foul. Smith initially with the stop, but Green kept at him and a chance for a three-point play. Draymond Green launches a three, puts it in. 
Look, there's something to be said for a beautiful reverse, a sweet step back three, a gorgeous fadeaway. I love graceful basketball too. But let's hear it for another kind of guy. A fighter who picks his punches, a tough guy with brains, the kind of guy we could maybe almost imagine ourselves being if we had the heart to work harder and study more and if we never, ever, 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 ever stopped scrapping. Yeah, so let's hear it for Draymond Green, lunch pail superstar. He's a magnificent player. He just plays very intelligently. He is the heart and soul of their team. Steph Curry is the engine that makes them run. But this guy does everything else, all of the intangibles. And you can see the Warriors bench. They know that he just needs one more point for a triple-double. And they gave him the post up, and the Warriors bench loves him. But you know what? That's what happens when you win. That's my out shot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Pirello. Our production assistant is Christian Duena. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Help this week from Jennifer Marmer. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they are all free at MaximumFun.org, our website, or in your favorite podcast program. A lot of them are extended online, so you'll hear even more stuff than you hear live on the show. Just go to MaximumFun.org or search for Bullseye. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the hilarious and insightful Guy Branham. This week, what the team love and hate about Game of Thrones. Pop Rocket, you can find it wherever you download podcasts. Please help to make Bullseye even better by taking a quick survey. Just go to npr.org slash bullseye survey and tell us what you think. That's npr.org slash bullseye survey. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 